Hello everyone and welcome to Witch Hassle. I am your host, Mandelbrot Horseshoe, and I'm still trying out new pseudonyms to see if they fit. Today I'm bringing you something of a rarity. It's a sunken ship, a buried treasure. It is a lost episode. I recorded this interview two years ago, and at long last, here it is for your ears. The world has changed a great deal, but luckily we are talking about a figure who lived in a time of potentially great change, or at least great uncertainty. It is the French astrologer and theologian Pierre Dailly. And I have here for you my conversation about Dailly with the fabulous and erudite Laura Ackerman Smaller, who wrote History, Prophecy, and the Stars, the Christian astrology of Pierre Dailly, 1350-1420, from Princeton University Press. It's really an enlightening and wonderful conversation, and I'm so happy to finally bring it to you. We get right into it, so I'm going to give you a little bit of context, put you in the picture of Pierre Dailly's world. At the time that Pierre Dailly was writing, there was a great deal of uncertainty because of something called the Western Schism. Multiple people were claiming to be the rightful Pope, and there was a general sense in the air that the world might be coming to an end. And Pierre Dailly wrote about this idea that you could predict the coming of the Antichrist using the conjunctions of Jupiter and Saturn, and thus could point to that to say, hey, golly, maybe the world's not ending because, according to these calculations, the Antichrist isn't due for another couple hundred years. It's a fascinating look at the intersection of religion, theology, politics, rhetoric, and a whole bunch of other stuff. And I'm so glad I was able to talk to Professor Smaller, and she was so generous with her knowledge to walk me through all this. So without even more delay after these two years, here's that chat. Sort of to, to give people a background on Pierre Dai, would you would you call him a theologian? first or a diplomat where where would you sort of put him in terms of his many interests and talents by training he's a theologian he's he's certainly also yeah very politically active administrator perhaps is a good word for it one of the few modern biographies of of Pierre Dailly by Bernard Gunier it's in a book with that's a collection of four biographies, but but the title of the of the book in English is Between Church and State, and I think Dai exemplifies that title because he was very politically connected. He was very interested in the governance of the church as a bishop and then as a cardinal. Leaders at the Council of Constance, he was very interested in issues of church governance and he was also connected to those who were politically powerful he turns to astrology pretty heavily later in life but before that he's he's a bit skeptical of it is my is my understanding would that be a fair characterization right, right. i think the transition is from him absorbing basically kind of the standard scholastic line about theology and uh, excuse me about astrology which is that it's not something that theologians really want to approve of 
because if one were to grant that astrology could predict the futures of human beings, then it denies free will and it denies God's omnipotence, both of which are important planks in the, in the house uh, that holds up Christian theology and the Christian moral economy. So, so those two things must be preserved. On the other hand, Dai and all of the theologians around him lived in a time where everybody knew that the heavens affect the earth. One only had to look to see that the tides were linked to the phases of the moon to know that to be true. So nobody denied that there were celestial influences. So as he goes to university, as he studies and studies the seven liberal arts, and as he studies theology, he sort of picks up the standard line, which is that astrology cannot predict with any certainty any actions of human beings because of the existence of human free will. And any astrologers that claim to do so or that even by, you know, by some fluke manage to make these great accurate predictions about precisely what a human is going to do in the future might be doing so because they're involved with demons who are telling them the future. On the other hand, there's a lot of on the other hands in scholastic theology. On the other hand, theologians, or whose works Dai knew very well, someone like Thomas Aquinas, right, said, yes, but we know that humans have free will. The stars work upon the bodies. Human beings rarely actually resist their bodily impulses. And so, you know, more often than not, they're swept along by where they're propelled by the stars so that predictions about anything about the body, so astrological medicine, are valid, and predictions about the behavior of large groups, because, again, most people are going to be swept along by their bodily passions, are more or less legit. And, th and this is what Thomas Aquinas says, and he's not exactly a pro-astrology thinker. So this is the, the attitude about astrology that Dai inherits. And what happens as he becomes, in my theory, as he becomes acquainted with the works of Roger Bacon and encounters some astrological theories about big changes in politics, big changes in religion, he becomes more and more intrigued, he reads more and more, and it makes more and more sense to him. It's also a very useful tool for him later on in life in a way that he doesn't need it early in life. And when we talk about about the use of this tool later in life, is is the major prompting the uh, the Western schism, or is it just sort of the general? Because I I get the sense from your book that that this this thought that the apocalypse was at hand at any given moment was very common during this time period. So is this is the sort of turmoil of the schism the thing that really prompts this, or is it really a reckoning with this this eschatological kind of milieu that's just sort of pervasive the whole time? So I think the two are linked, but both of those factors are important in why Dai finds astrology such a useful tool. His entire professional life, his entire adult life, is dominated by the division of Christendom between two and then three popes. So it's a major concern to him. And, and, and schism is, is, on some levels, 
a very practical concern, right? When he becomes Bishop of Cambrai, he goes to a seat that's uh, to a to a to a see to a to a diocese that's divided, right, between adherents of the Roman Pope and adherents of the Avignon Pope. So it's it's a, a very practical concern, and it's also yes, in some ways, an eschatological concern because there are a number of people who, based upon a line in Second Thessalonians believe that the schism is a sign that the Antichrist's reign is about to begin. And for Dai, as the schism trudges on and gets worse, and as every sort of more moderate type of means of bringing the schism to an end fails over and over and over again, and it becomes increasingly apparent that the 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 solution of calling a church council and stating that the council has to have more authority than a pope is going to be the only way to end it, he becomes very disillusioned with what this eschatological interpretation of the schism does. Right? It's not it's not helpful. It's not helpful to call your enemies the minions of Antichrist or the forerunners of Antichrist if you actually need to sit down at a table and negotiate with them. The other practical thing that astrology does for Pierre Dailly, and again, it's linked to these, to both the apocalyptic mentality and to the practicalities of the schism, and to a real concern amongst theologians and intellectuals at the time, is that astrology becomes for Pierre Dailly this sort of external check by which he can counter pretended or claims at prophecy. Dailly and his pupil Jean Gerson and a number of theologians in the late 14th and 15th century become very obsessed with a problem they call the discernment of spirits. And the question is whether people who are claiming that God has inspired them or spoken to them are really being inspired by God or whether this is a case of demonic possession. Well, this is actually a really practical problem during the schism years as their, you know, prophets pop up conveniently on either side. And so there's, you know, there are prophets who pop up and say, yes, the Roman Pope is the real Pope. There's a prophet who pops up and says, oh, the Avignon Pope is the real Pope. And, you know, I mean, there's this very real woman in the south of France, Marie Robin, who's on the payroll of the Avignon papacy because she keeps on having visions saying that's the real Pope. So by by taking astrology as sort of like not saying, okay, well, God spoke to me and he said, you're wrong, Marie Robin, where Dai gets himself into the exact same problem of discernment of spirits. He's able to bring in this sort of external check. And I think he finds astrology very convenient in that regard, too. So how does astrology function as an external check on something like prophecy? Is it is it simply that you have another way of searching for a kind of truth about what will occur at a certain time, or is it something more directly linked to prophecy itself? Oh, that's such a good question, because for someone like Dai, and and then there's a number of thinkers in the later Middle Ages and and the Renaissance who go down this path, why astrology works particularly well as as this tool here is that, and you can find this in Dai's writings and in other astrologers' writings and in other and some other theologians' writings, that the sense that one God wrote the book of the heavens, 
The heavens proclaim the glory of God, he reads in, in the Psalms. The heavens are like a book that God has written with his own hand, he reads in the Bible. So reading the book of the heavens or reading the book of nature is just reading and interpreting another revelation from God. And then Dai says, again, and he's not alone in saying this, that astrology itself, this tool by which he is reading the heavens, was also given to us by God. Dai subscribes to a line of reasoning that sees astrology having been revealed to the patriarchs, whether to a son of Noah or to Abraham or to Adam's grandson, Seth. And therefore, the tool astrology is itself a form of revelation. So in that sense, this is what I argue in, in some other things I've, I've written, astrology becomes conflated with prophecy. It becomes a form of prophecy. So it's an equally valid tool by which he can counter this more troublesome problem of, of someone saying, I've been inspired by the Holy Spirit, when it's, it's very, very difficult for a theologian or an exorcist to tell. Joan of Arc, okay, for political reasons also, people go both ways. But there's another wonderful example that Renata Blumenfeld Kaczynski has written a beautiful little book about, a woman called Hermine of France, who Dai's pupil Jean Gerson at first thinks, oh, yes, she is inspired by the Holy Spirit. And then he decides, no, 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 she's actually possessed by demons. So astrology for Dai is an equally valid divine tool that he can use to counter these claims at prophecy that are, in fact, quite disruptive, in particular during the schism years. And I feel like something that is worth pointing out for folks who are listening to this is, is how long the schism actually lasted. I think for, I mean, like I, you know, went to like a public high school, so maybe not the best education there, but like I got the sort of sense that the schism was like a, a strange blip in Western history that just kind of came and went, but we're talking something along the lines of, uh, of 40 plus years here. We're talking 40 years. And it, I mean, if you count the fact that the last Avignon Pope never really gave up his see and that there was actually a successor elected to him so that there's you know this guy on the island of Piniscola who's still claiming to be pope and who has you know a handful of followers it is 40 plus years but if you think how disruptive the american civil war is right four years of history 40 years is a long time yeah thank you and and as i said it it's it dominates dai's entire adult life the schism, the the end of the council of constance the election of a new pope, his installation happens just at the end of Dai's life. He, he gets to enjoy, you know, like basically about a year or, or two of life where he's not worried about the schism. So my sense is that early on in the schism, he was fairly convinced that this was essentially a sign that the end, the end was here. And as it sort of wore on, he became more convinced that how the schism was treated or resolved would have more of an effect on whether or not it was in fact the beginning of the end for for all of the universe. So was there was there more sort of astrology near the front end where he was sort of convinced that this was possibly the end of things, or was there sort of more astrology near the back of that where he was arguing instead that perhaps this was a more malleable situation? Right. That he 
his turn to astrology isn't until quite late in, in the schism and quite late in his life. The first thing he writes that really shows any real engagement with astrology is really a treatise from 1410. His earlier works where he mentions astrology, he really doesn't know that much about it. And what he finds in astrology, and and by using this theory about the great conjunctions, as it's called, that is to say a pattern established by conjunctions of the planets Saturn and Jupiter, the, the two outermost planets in the Ptolemaic system, what he, what he discovers in that, in analyzing the great conjunctions, is that Antichrist isn't going to arrive until possibly the year 1789 so not at all right now during our very own schism so it's it's a great comfort to him but it's true that he does take this sort of conditional view of prophecy as he's and in in part maybe because of this comforting message he's receiving from astrology right on the eve of the opening of the council of constance that would bring the schism finally to an end. Dai says, hmm, you know, the stars are looking bad, but God alone is that wise astrologer who rules the stars. And if we at the council, I mean, basically he says, if we at the council do our job right, then this isn't going to be this great falling away that's predicted in two Thessalonians. And there is this idea, right, in, in medieval theology and in medieval analysis of prophecy, that prophecies can be conditional. The, the precedent is always Jonah and Nineveh, where he utters a prophecy, but it's basically like, but if you clean up your act, it's going to be okay. And so then things turn out okay. And so that precedent is there. This idea of the sort of religious significance of the Great Conjunctions, I think I think people listening to this right now are probably given the audience of this of this program, are probably going to be fairly familiar with the idea of a great conjunction because we are actually in a year where um, I think one or two of them are happening. But what what was a great conjunction for Pierre Dailly? And like, what to what extent is he drawing from figures like Roger Bacon for something like this? Yeah, thanks. That's a good question. So what Dailly read first in... Roger Bacon, and then ultimately in, in Bacon's source, an Arabic language Persian astrologer named Abu Mashar, or Albumazar in Latin, was that Saturn and Jupiter will come into conjunction every 20 years. And that those conjunctions, if mapped along the zodiac, will form a pattern where they will stay within one group of like signs or one triplicity, so the fiery signs, or the watery signs, or the airy signs, for 240 years. And then they'll shift to a new triplicity. And then eventually, at nine, after 960 years, they'll come right around to, to where they all started out. And what Abu Mashar had said, and what Bacon picked up on, and Dayi picked up on, and many late medieval and Renaissance astrologers picked up on, was this idea, oh, okay, so every 240 years with this change of triplicity, there's going to be major changes in kingdoms and in religions. And so Dayi is is playing with the pattern of the great conjunctions. He's He first is playing with it as a way of structuring history writing. He's playing with it as a way of 
Can he figure out exactly how many years there were between creation and the birth of Christ? And then he's certainly playing with it as a way of, can I predict, hey, this great religious change that's going to be the arrival of Antichrist and his sect. Because the other thing he pulls from Bacon and ultimately from Abu Mashar is the idea that by listing the theoretical, the theoretical sets of conjunctions one could have, and there's seven planets in the medieval universe, right? And that, and that includes the sun and the moon as planets. So there's, there's then seven possible sects that can be there in history. And the last one is going to be the sect of Antichrist. Seven, six, wait, six possible things that can come into conjunction with Jupiter. So anyway, the last one of these sects is going to be the sect of Antichrist. And all the other ones have happened. So there's only one to come. So if there's going to be a big religious change signaled by a Saturn-Jupiter conjunction with one of these changes of triplicity, then it's going to bring about the arrival of the sect of Antichrist. He's playing with a couple of other astrological theories too, but that's that's the big one. So there's this idea that that six or world religions will sort of emerge and their emergence will be simultaneous with a certain set of astrological conditions. Right. And, and these conditions it's it's not just that Saturn and Jupiter are conjunct, but that they are at the end of a particular cycle of conjunctions? Exactly, exactly. Or they or they begun a new part. They, they, it's the shift into the new triplicity or the new trigon that's supposed to signal great changes. And, and the great example in all of the, the Arabic astrological works is the conjunction signifying the rise of Islam. So that becomes sort of the example. Hmm. But then what what gets Christian authors really excited is the idea that there's also a conjunction signifying the birth of Christ. And Christian writers start encountering this idea in the 12th century at a time that they're very, very interested in finding examples where non-Christians, especially non-Christians before the birth of Christ, predicted the birth of Christ. And and part of it is because they're in dialogue. There's more contact, for example, like in, in Spain uh, with Muslims and Jews. They're in dialogue with other faiths a little bit more. Um, but there's there's this great joy in finding confirmations of the faith from outside the faith. So the fact that this astrological theory from an Arabic astrologer points to a, a conjunction that signifies the birth of Christ and the rise of the Christian religion. And, and Dai reads this in Bacon, and there's this other like wild poem attributed to Ovid, which is a complete forgery, right? It's not by Ovid, where Ovid, the, you know, this ancient Roman poet from before the birth of Christ is, is made to talk about this conjunction that signifies a boy that's going to be born of a virgin and create this new, um, this new religious sect that, and goes on and on and on about it. And they loved this in the 12th century. So all this kind of, all, all these theories become really sort of widespread, not just amongst astrologers. They, 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 make it into a lot of mainstream theological writings in the 12th century, sermons. And Dai would include astrological themes and information in his religious sermons as well, right? He did indeed, yes. 
Yes, he did. There's an invitation to do so in at least two places, right? Um, because during the season of Advent, one of the texts for one of the four Sundays of Advent is the passage from Luke that says there will be signs in the sun and the moon and the stars. And there's an invitation during Advent to think not just about Christ's arrival as baby Jesus in Bethlehem, but about his Advent, the second coming. So, so there's an invitation during Advent to think about eschatology and to think about astrology. And then for Epiphany, the, so the, which is a feast that celebrates, among other things, right, the, the arrival of the Magi to give their gifts to the Christ child. The text in Matthew says, we saw his star in the east. And so that has invited speculation about astrology since the time of the Gospels, since the time the Gospels were written. Dai is, is pulling from various sources, and you you describe him as something of a, of a conservative, so much as he is sort of attempting to avoid controversy by large quoting other sources. I think well, you, you use the phrase that he is not terribly a resident. I am curious, what attracted you to Dai specifically, especially given that there seems to be so much going on in this general vein? Of, of astrology and eschatology and and theological debate at this time. Why why Dai? I guess I don't know if I would call him conservative. Not original, yes, in that like many late medieval authors, his favorite mode of composition would be cutting and pasting. And sometimes he gives an attribution and sometimes he doesn't but that's that's not that unusual what it what attracted me to him was i was really interested in this this question that of why would a, a theologian in the, in the later middle ages who should have i'm putting scare quotes around this known better be interested in astrology. My interest in medieval astrology stemmed from basically two readings from college and as I was preparing for grad school. One was an immersion in Dante's Divine Comedy and the passage in Paradiso where Dante finds himself in the constellation of Gemini and he says, oh, you're the stars that made me a poet. Here's Dante, the great Christian poet of the Middle Ages. And then also the passage in Augustine's Confessions, where he has this very neat refutation of astrology, where his father sort of, you know, realizes like, hey, yeah, like my wife's going to have a child and my neighbor's slave's wife's going to have a child. And turns out they're born exactly the same time to very different fates. Why, given this really neat refutation of astrology and, and then Augustine's longer refutation of astrology in the city of God. Why on earth would a Christian poet in the 14th century have turned to astrology? And I, I set myself this task of, can I find a figure to write about who was really writing a lot about astrology who could help me to answer that question? And I I mean, I it sort of just went about this very methodically. There's a wonderful set of books. I always show my students a picture of it. It's an eight-volume set by a scholar named Lynn Thorndike, who sat down 
and wrote eight volumes on the history of magic and experimental science, starting in the 1920s and ending in the 1950s. He went to Europe every summer and read, I don't know how many manuscripts, and just sort of started, just did this survey. So I started in volume one and read until I found someone who I thought could help me answer that question. And when I hit Thorndike's chapter about Pierre Dailly. And then I started looking, and I knew Pierre Dailly as, as someone who had argued for church councils and, and who was famous as what's called a nominalist theologian. I knew him for all those reasons. I didn't know about the astrology. And I started looking around to see, has anybody done this? And nobody had. And yet all of his astrological works were printed, you know, in the first few decades of printing and then were were read in, in the Renaissance, including by Columbus. And so they also were readily accessible. And so I thought, this is great. I, this is the person I want to read. So I, I was attracted to him because he could help me answer that question. Having spent so much time with his, with his writings and with his, with his life, what answers have you been able to sort of draw from that? <laughs> That my question was a little bit um, naive and that the answer to it is both simpler and more complicated than I had anticipated because the opposition, you know, go back to our initial conversation about what Dai learned about astrology as a university student. Augustine's wasn't the only voice there in the Middle Ages. So this this idea that, well, all theology was opposed to astrology was, was sort of a false dichotomy that I, that I was raising. Um, but also that Dai's reasons for being interested in astrology and then what he was doing with it and how he was justifying it were in many ways more complicated than I, than I thought they would be. I had a vague idea that I... I could link his interest in astrology to his nominalist theology, which is a uh, a way of talking about God's omnipotence that, and other scholars have said this, and we're saying this, I think even at, at the time, that, that could be related to sort of defending ideas of laws of nature and therefore be linked to a sort of scientific mentality that's compatible also with Christian belief, if you will. Mm -hmm. uh, I had an idea that I could do that. And that was really sort of what I thought my answer was going to be. But I think in the end, and as I've lived with Pierre Dailly for, you know, all these many years since I published my book on him, I'm, I'm convinced that that's not the whole answer. Do you think the idea that, that astrology was useful to him in making certain arguments against a kind of apocalyptic thinking that he thought was counterproductive to reconciling the different sides of the schism. Do you think this instrumental use of astrology is, is central, or do you think that this, instead of not only being not sort of the, the main thrust of the story, is perhaps almost incident, incidental? To what? Or do you think it's the central, the central sort of attraction for him is the, is the usefulness of it, even if it's not oh, say, the entire thing. Oh, why, uh, why he was centrally attracted? He found it useful, but when he began playing with astrology, he didn't know what the answer was he was going to get. 
I think. Mm. I mean, there have been wonderful studies of, of Dayi and various aspects of Dayi, but I, I have to give a shout out to a really fine article by, by an excellent French historian named Jean-Patrice Boudet, who probably, well, who probably knows more about medieval astrology than, than anyone on the planet, except for possibly Charles Burnett in England. But, but anyway, Boudet is, an amazing expert on medieval astrology. And he went back to the manuscripts in Cambrai where Dai's astrological treatises first appear. And he worked closely with some experts in paleography there. And, and what he was able to discover by careful analysis of the handwriting is that Dai had this whole basically research team, is, is what Boudet calls it, who were sort of reading astrological works and feeding him notes that then Dai was putting together into these treatises, which, which helps to explain the lack of originality, but also sometimes the lack of consistency across Dai's astrological works, and also the fact that he writes this one treatise that says, let me go back and correct some stuff from these earlier ones, it's sort of as he's getting new feeds from his research team. He's he's constantly correcting things. But I don't think you go to that much trouble just for instrumental reasons. I think that Dai, you know, as I said, every nobody in the Middle Ages doubted that the stars had influence on the earth below. Even the the harshest critics of astrology did not doubt that. So I think Dai really believed that these astrological theories held and he was intrigued by by what they could tell him so in that sense i guess to saying to say that astrology was just instrumental for him makes it sound almost as if this was a cynical use of something that he you know if he had gotten an answer he didn't like he wouldn't have used so i don't know somebody i wish this was a my had been my analogy, but it wasn't. But somebody I was talking with once said, well, it's kind of like, you know, economics today, right? Like we ask economists essentially to predict the future. They're not always right, but we see it as this very scientific means of predicting the future. It's got a lot of numbers in it and it's complicated. And astrology has that same set of trappings. And I think had essentially that that same that's held that same place for someone like Pierre Dailly. Thank you for that, that incredibly thoughtful answer. I feel like we've sort of, we've danced around this, but one of the things I wanted to make sure we got to is this idea that Pierre Dailly saw astrology as a natural theology. Mm-hmm. Could you briefly just sort of describe what he meant by that? It's interesting. This This term natural theology becomes really important later on and really important in the history of science later on. Dai, by using that term, is on the one hand, he's he's thinking of criticisms he must have heard because he puts this in one of his treatises. I know there's some people who say I shouldn't be doing this, right? So instead of saying astrology is a natural means by which I can think about the future. By throwing out their natural theology, he's really plugging into this whole set of ideas I mentioned before that nature is also God's book. God wrote two books. God wrote the Bible and God wrote nature. 
And he gave us both of those books. And astrology is the tool by which we are to interpret, or one of the tools by which we are to interpret the book of nature. And God gave us that tool also, just as he gave us reason. Um, and just as some medieval thinkers would claim they had some kind of divine inspiration to interpret scripture. So when Dai used that loaded phrase, I think he meant all of those things. I think it's it's perhaps a bit trite to say this, but I'm going to say it anyway, and I accept the consequences. But it seems like we are living in a time that is perhaps not chaotic in the same way as Dai's, but a time where similarly there seems to be a great deal of chaos, particularly in sort of uh, major institutions and and traditional sources of authority, and also the sense that perhaps an apocalypse of a different sort is right around the corner. Maybe not necessarily a biblical apocalypse, but something along the lines of a uh, you know climate disaster mm-hmm. or pandemics or things like that, sort of taking root in some eternal and irrevocable way. And so, being in a time somewhat, at least in the contours, similar to Pierre Dailly's. Are there any things that we can sort of take from the life and researches of Pierre Dailly that might be useful to keep in mind as we go through these various trials of our own? That's such a lovely question. Thank you. And it's also a really hard question. And I'm glad that you gave me a little bit of a heads up that you might ask me some version of this question, because I thought about it and I thought and I thought about this question a lot. And I think the lesson that I would like to take from Pierre Dailly's life and from his example is, I think, the realization that I believe he came to when he abandoned his apocalyptic view of the schism, and in part thanks to astrology, as he was embracing the the conciliar solution, the idea of sitting down together and talking it out. This idea that the most intense rhetoric that literally demonizes one's opponent by 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 painting, you know, the the followers of the Church of Rome as as the minions of Antichrist or the followers of the the Pope in Avignon as the minions of Antichrist, that that most intense apocalyptic rhetoric demonizing one's opponent is not helpful in getting on with the very human task of of trying to solve the monumental problems of our times. And that, I think, is a lesson very much that's appropriate to our own era. Amazing. Well, thank you so much for for taking the time to chat. And I'm definitely going to to recommend your your research into Pierre because... Your your work is really fascinating and a beautiful window into this very complex and erudite figure. So thank you for being on. I really I really do appreciate this. Oh, thank you, Cooper. I really enjoyed talking with you. Thank you so much to Laura Ackerman Smaller. Be sure to check out her book history prophecy and the stars available from princeton university press i will put out a link in the show notes where you can buy the book and also a link to where you can learn more about professor smaller and the work and research that she is doing 
listening to this interview, I was really struck by this idea of natural theology, and it got me thinking about, like, what do we call magic or witchcraft? Is that kind of like an experimental theology? Is that a practical theology? Is that sort of if you've gone into the theology laboratory and you're putting, you know, uh, theology in the theology beakers to see what happens, or you're going to take some theology and, you know, put it in a, in a little maze to see if it can learn the maze, or, you know, you know poke it, see what it does. Really fascinating idea there. And also, it's, it's odd to listen to this two years later and think about the time in which we recorded it. I think it was October of 2020, right? A time of intense malaise, uncertainty, anger, because we'd had the summer of sort of George Floyd protests, you know, and COVID was really setting in as like, oh, COVID's here to stay. This this might be something we have to deal with for a very long time. And of course, the U.S. presidential election had not yet occurred, so there was a great deal of uncertainty on that front. And it's odd to look at how horrible all that was and think, ah, yes, the good old days, because it does seem like the political and material situation here in the United States has gotten uh, worse since then. But even in that context, I think there's a lot that we can take from the figure of Pierre Dailly, not just in terms of his approaches to things like astrology and prophecy, which are very interesting, like that idea of like, well, you know, this, this prophecy is being a conditional thing, right? We're divining because we need to know, you know, if-then questions rather than our inescapable fate. But also the political figure of Pierre Dailly might be of use to us in our own political situation. For example, this idea of using councils in a situation where dynamic individuals are the source of political friction, right? Where it's like, which one of these popes is the right pope? Which one of these individuals is the person in whom all the power should be vested? Like, the move away from that is rather than hashing out, you know, is my papal dad stronger than your papal dad, but rather sort of saying, how do we horizontalize the power structure? How do we get a bunch of voices in the room so we can get a bunch of possibilities in the room and depersonalize this issue from these individual figures that we've sort of invested all this psychic, emotional, political, material power and weight into. Which feels especially relevant, you know, at this time on the left, where I think there is some concern and suspicion about this idea of, like, okay, institutional politics or the media or, or all the sort of major institutions of American political and cultural life are based on individuals, right? It's based on who is the figurehead, who is this voice of the masses, or something like that. And that question of, like, how do you keep movements going successfully when there is this seemingly countervailing power that wants to pluck individuals from the movements as the face of the movements in a way that perhaps co-ops those movements or disempowers those movements, right? So maybe Pierre Dailly offers us a potential solution to that problem by saying, well, you know, the issue then is not do we have a referendum on whether or not we should beatify this leadership figure or should we demonize this leadership figure but rather refocusing on the question of the movement itself like even if we accept you know the idea that some leadership individuals are going to be necessary to represent a movement in certain venues or to help focus the goals and agenda of a movement in some way the point of it is the movement right so we might see the end of the western schism 
not so much as we have found the correct pope, but rather we as a movement have decided amongst ourselves which pope is the pope that we're going to work through. So like this question of, of how do we think of systems of power as ones in which we can talk amongst ourselves and and move forward as a body rather than constantly thinking of of whoever is put in the position of the head being the one who actually has the power. So I guess what I'm trying to say is maybe Pierre Dailly will be useful for thinking about how we can do, I guess, anarchism to overthrow Cartesian dualism? Sure, let's say that's where we've landed. This has been Witch Hassle. Our theme music was performed by Sebastian Baverstam and recorded by Edward Lee. If you want to support the show, go to patreon.com slash witchhassle where you can uh, throw a little scratch my way to keep the lights on. And also there's some bonus content there for you. So, you know, a little quid pro quo. Thank you for listening. Good luck with the work ahead.